This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I want to note from the onset at the top of this program that uh, one of our best pals, perhaps our very best pal here at Radio Parallax, our fellow public affairs host, Dr. Andy Jones, will be tomorrow night at 7.30 at the Avid Reader in Davis, which is at 617 2nd Street, to promote his new book, Pub Quizzes, Trivia for Smart People. Dr. Andy, for many years, has been the quiz master in different venues in Davis, most recently at DeVere's Pub. Yours truly has participated in, in many of those, uh, those quizzes and would like to note that Dr. Andy always does an excellent job. We understand his book has 350 pages, which contain 33 quizzes with over a thousand trivia questions. We don't have a copy of it as yet, but we will, and hopefully bring him on the program to discuss it. That will be fun. And speaking of trivia, as we are, a wonderful piece of trivia came my way, thanks to somebody on Facebook, which was that, well, Mr. Merlin, I need a little musical help on this one. Many a tear has to fall, but it's all in the game. All in the wonderful game. That we know as love. That is the classic 1958 number one U.S. pop hit, It's All in the Game by Tommy Edwards. It uh, surfaced in a motion picture, I believe, which escapes me at the moment. But what doesn't escape me is the fact that this song has the unique distinction of being the only number one hit in U.S. history to have been co-written by a United States vice president. The story is that Calvin Coolidge's vice president, Charles G. Dawes, who was an Illinois lawyer, a World War I general, and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for his plans to deal with German war reparations, was also a dabbler in music. He composed in 1911, long before he was vice president, a tune titled Melody in A Major. It was considered a fine piece of music, which of course it is, and when lyrics got attached to it, Many years later, that's when It's All in the Game was born. And he'll kiss your lips And caress your waiting fingertips For our younger listeners, we should uh, clarify that uh, the term melody, as in melody in A major, refers to a musically satisfying sequence of single notes that is the principal part of harmonized music. This, of course, is something of a lost art in what passes for music today, at least in rap, which I understand by listening to the radio, I believe it was NPR the other day, uh, is now the dominant form of music and has basically displaced rock and pop. And the less said about that, the better. And we've been trying of late to maybe say less about the issues of political correctness. We have sort of beat that drum in past shows at, at length. We must take a brief detour into it on today's program, I think, because I'm curious about some things going on in national public radio. 
We expressed surprise some weeks back that Garrison Keillor had been fired from, I guess it's Public Radio International, I'm not sure. At any rate, he was fired because of one incident involving one woman some years ago where she apparently, as the story goes, objected to his putting his hand on her as he was consoling her. That seems to be about all we know about this story, except that Keeler is evidently planning to fight his dismissal, or at least the correctness of his dismissal. We reported some years back that during a visit to New York, uh, this correspondent uh, was privileged to be able to sit in on one of the recordings of the Leonard Lopate program on WNYC in New York. Well, it turns out now Leonard, too, has been dismissed, fired from WNYC for inappropriate behavior. Mr. Loprate has expressed shock and dismay over his dismissal, claiming that he has done nothing wrong and is, frankly, surprised by all of the hubbub. WNYC has claimed that, well, he was counseled about this one-on-one and that he had created what was being described as a hostile work environment. And I don't know, who hasn't had a boss who they didn't get PO'd at for the work environment he or she had created? I think that's got to be universal, isn't it? But having heard this story, I decided to look into it because, if anything, Leonard Lopate struck me as a very mild-mannered figure. So in digging around, I found a write-up, the only one I've been able to find, describing why it was he was fired. And from what I can gather, at one point he was discussing with a guest the fact that the Aztec word for avocado was the same word for testicle, which I believe is true. And although it's unclear, he apparently made some sort of gesture, I suppose with his hands indicating a scrotal-like object. I'm not sure about this. But at any rate, um, what he said and what he did with his hands apparently was seen as objectionable by the guest, and he was complained about. Evidently, he compounded this felony by remarking to one of his underlings that he, he hadn't realized, until he spied the clothing she was wearing that day, that she was so bosomy. This, too, was evidently judged highly unacceptable. Unacceptable to the point where it's part of why they fired his ass. We're going to see if we can't find out a little bit more about this story and what may be subsequent legal battles about it. We're not trying to downplay the seriousness of what is, you know, currently been revealed by the likes of, you know, Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and, and so many others. But don't we need to make a distinction somewhere along the way between child rape and ribald statements? I don't know, just asking. The thought has crossed our minds that these days, the mere assertion that someone has been inappropriate is enough to get him canned. Never mind the appropriateness of the allegation of the inappropriateness. The charge alone seems to bring people down these days because when in doubt, they're just going to cut someone loose. This reminds us very much of the witch hunts that took place in this country back in the 50s and as, as late as the 60s regarding communists. Well, technically, I guess it started in the 40s after World War II. But back in the day, to be called a communist was pretty much curtains. Mitigating factors and other considerations didn't seem to much enter into it. In that regard, I'd like to pull out an old issue of Mental Floss I've been sitting on for some years. It's actually the December 2012 issue. 
which described how, well, when Hollywood told director Jules Dassin he couldn't make any more movies, he responded with one of the best crime films ever, Rafifi. To quote from the piece in Mental Floss by Ethan Trex, In 1949, Jules Dassin should have been on top of the world. The 38-year-old director had released a string of classic noir films, including 1948's The Naked City and 1949's Thieves Highway. And he'd completed the upcoming Night and the City. Noir was wildly popular at the time, and Dassin had established himself as a master of the genre. Then, two colleagues killed his career. Under pressure from the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, Fellow directors Edward Dimitrik and Frank Tuttle fingered Dassin as a former communist. The allegations were true. The filmmaker had been a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s. But as Dassin pointed out, he'd been radicalized from the age of six, saying, quote, You grow up in Harlem, where you have trouble getting fed and keeping families warm, and you live very close to Fifth Avenue, which is elegant. Now, Dessine had long since rebuked the ideology. In 1939, he'd been so disgusted by the Soviet Union's non-aggression pact with the Nazis that he left the Communist Party. But such details as that didn't matter to Senator Joe McCarthy and others on the witch hunt. Though Dessine never appeared before HUAC and was never charged with any crime, the mere mention of his name was enough to land him on Hollywood's blacklist. Dessine's career in America was over. In an instant, he'd become a pariah, too toxic for any studio to touch. Faced with expulsion from both industry and country, Dessine could have played the part of the defeated. He could have switched careers or been relegated to irrelevance. Instead, he did something braver. He took a handful of cash and taught Hollywood a lesson. Going on with the article, when Dessine couldn't get a gig at home, he searched overseas. In France, he took a job directing a Zsa Zsa Gabor film, but it quickly became apparent just how far the blacklist's reach extended. During shooting, a union official handed the film's producer an ultimatum, dump the scene or lose any shot at American distribution. And that threat wasn't just for the current picture. It threatened to blackball any future films the producer was involved with. Dessine got the axe. To make matters worse, his passport was revoked, meaning he could neither work in France nor leave the country. He milled about in Paris with a cadre of other blacklisted filmmakers, supporting himself by selling uncredited stories to Hollywood producers. In 1954, he snagged temporary travel documents to work on an Italian film. Again, American forces conspired against him, convinced the Italians to label him an undesirable radical. They note that his spirit at this point was nearly broken. It had been five years since his last project. Then, an opportunity presented itself. A French studio wanted to adopt Auguste Le Breton's novel, Du Rififi Chez Le Homme, and I'm sorry about my French pronunciation, but Dessine was given a weekend to read it and decide whether he wanted to make the film. He jumped at the opportunity, only to realize how imperfect the novel was. Mental Floss notes that the novel was hardly material Dessine would have chosen himself. The book was packed with racist descriptions of North African villains and gratuitous violence, but he was in no position to be choosy. He decided to exploit the little material that he had. One minor heist scene seemed promising, so Dessine took the job and spent six days turning that one scene into a screenplay. Upon reading the script, Le Breton asked, Where's my book? Antofloss says that Dessine's return to the director's chair wasn't a grand affair, which may explain why no one bothered to stop him. With only $200,000, less than a quarter of the budget of Rufifi's contemporary On the Waterfront, Dessine couldn't afford stars and instead got creative. The movie's centerpiece is a robbery, a 30-minute sequence that unfolds in almost total silence. There's no dialogue, there's no music. 
The only noises are incidental, like the muffled clink of chisels on a concrete floor or a piercing note when someone accidentally strikes a piano key. They go on to say that in the end, the studio's risk paid off handsomely. Critics and audiences embraced Rafifi from its first screening. French director Francois Truffaut said, Out of the worst crime novel I've ever read, Jules Dessin has made the best crime film I've ever seen. Dessin won the Best Director's Award at the 1955 Cannes Film Festival. In an embarrassment to Hollywood, the French flag was raised behind him as he accepted the award. One aspect of this I find curious, some members of the press decried Rafifi as a visual handbook for carrying out a heist. Mexico apparently yanked showings of the film after a series of copycat burglaries. At any rate, 1956, a small distributor decided to risk screening Rafifi in New York with the director's name on it. Dessine became one of the first blacklisted names to appear on a film shown in the United States. And it was the right move. Just like their European counterparts, American moviegoers adored the film. Notoriously cranky New York Times critic Bosley Crother heaped on the praise, writing, This is perhaps the keenest crime film that ever came from France. Even today, Hollywood chases the film. When Rafifi was re-released in 2000, Los Angeles Times critic Kenneth Turan called it the benchmark all succeeding heist films have been measured against. It's noted that while film historians point to screenwriter Dalton Trumbo's credit on 1960's Spartacus as the death blow for the blacklist, Rafifi's popularity years earlier was the first hint that audiences would set aside politics for a great film. We should note at this juncture that neither Mr. McMillan or I have seen Rafifi, but it apparently is available on Netflix. So hopefully by the time we are talking to you next, we will give you a bit of follow-up on it. And another movie that we have not taken in yet is The Post. The MacGuffin in The Post, of course, is Daniel Ellsberg's release of The Pentagon Papers. The movie focuses in on Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham, respectively the editor and owner of The Washington Post, that decided to challenge the Nixon administration's attempts to suppress the release of these documents. I don't know whether they they got it right or not, uh, but we will certainly have an opinion on that matter after we see it, and we'll be sure to share it with you. I do want to note that uh, since we last spoke, as it were, I have had a chance to finish Daniel Ellsberg's latest and greatest, perhaps, work, The Doomsday Machine. It's really two books. The first part tells you of Ellsberg's work at the Rand Corporation dating back to the 1950s on the controls on nuclear war and some of the disconcerting things he learned about that, how he was able to influence some of the planning for a nuclear conflict. At least he was able to influence them by the Kennedy administration. But this is a most, most disconcerting work because, unfortunately, part two goes into the realities of what has changed or not changed since the Kennedy administration. It's a hell of a read. We very much hope to speak with Mr. Ellsberg about it for you, but we will quote from it a bit before today's show is over. It's an important work. And someone we wish to extend best wishes to would be David Talbot, who has generously spoken to us on three occasions about three of his wonderful works. David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com, spoke with us about his book, Brothers, about JFK and his brother, RFK. Also, his book, Devil Dog, the fascinating story of General Smedley Butler, whose short book, War is a Racket, is one that should be read by, I think, all of you 
dear listeners. More recently, he spoke to us and more recently talked to us about his book, The Devil's Chessboard, a fascinating look at Alan Dulles, who ran the CIA in the late 50s. We are huge fans of David's work and are sad to report that a couple months ago he suffered a debilitating illness from which he is now recovering. We wish him a speedy and complete recovery and certainly hope in the future he will yet again appear on this program. One book that we did not speak with David about was Season of the Witch, widely hailed and in particular cited by Peter Dale Scott, Emeritus Professor of English at UC Berkeley, as a wonderful description of the Summer of Love in San Francisco back in 1967. David was writing a column in the San Francisco Chronicle last year and was unsparing in his criticism of Silicon Valley. I think it's fair to say that last year we joined him in becoming a critic of this institution, I guess you'd call it. I don't know what you would call it, an entity? How would you describe Silicon Valley and all that that means? Oh, and I certainly don't mean the Netflix satire, which we're huge fans of. But uh, to segue a bit into other Bay Area journalism, we would note that freeform leftist KPFA is described as fighting for its life. Article in the Chronicle by Sam Whiting notes that after nearly 70 years on the air and on the brink, Berkeley-based KPFA-FM could be facing the end of its run as a pioneering, proudly left-wing radio outlet. There is some irony in the fact that after labor disputes, strikes, and other controversies in the years since its founding in 1949, the station, whose motto is Vigilant as Always, faces demise because of the financial woes of a radio station in New York City. A New York judge has ruled that KPFA's sister station, WBAI, is liable, is liable for $1.8 million in back rent for its transmission tower atop the Empire State Building. The judge also ruled that the landlord, Empire State Reality Trust, may pursue seizure of the assets of WBAI's parent, Pacifica Foundation, of which KPFA is the flagship station. Pacifica does not have $1.8 million, and this is bad news for the Pacifica Foundation. I would note that the leftist position often staked out by KPFA might might be a bit left of, of our position on on some issues. At the same time, uh, we appreciate very much the work they've done and, and would note that we frequently are in complete agreement with the positions they have taken. But really, we do need to hear all voices across the political spectrum. The mainstream media, as people like Tom Tomorrow are fond of pointing out, generally give you a cross-section of news between the middle of the road and the far right. And we think that uh, Dan Perkins of Tom Tomorrow uh, is, is not, not far off with that. You know, we've been hanging on for years to a, uh, an editorial in the Sacramento Bee by Stuart Leavenworth, which I think is worth quoting from at this exact point. The title was, Join the Ranks of Citizen Journalists. To quote from Mr. Leavenworth's piece, Over the last decade, the term citizen journalist has crept into our vocabulary. As an old school reporter, I was initially dubious about this concept. Journalism is a profession, and to do it well, you need a certain amount of training and experience. Just as you wouldn't want a citizen dentist pulling your teeth, you wouldn't want a citizen journalist to be your only source of news. Said Leavenworth, I still feel strongly about the need for professional journalists, but I've also come to appreciate what empowered citizens can contribute. 
The technological revolution that has brought us blogs, Twitter, and YouTube has inspired millions of people to tell stories and engage in fierce arguments in ways we never could have imagined a decade ago. He goes on to describe how the Sacramento Bee does provide an opportunity for citizens to submit 800-word essays. And he asked, are you one of those rare people who have a compelling story to tell, and can you tell it in about 800 words? If so, put your fingers to the keyboard and submit your original commentary to sacb.com slash S-E-N-D-O-P-E-D. He said, here's my promise. We read every one of them, and if they achieve the standard we're seeking, we will publish them. Well, we're glad for that, and I um, think it's worth mentioning at this point, we are eternally grateful for the fact that there are community-based radio stations out there that are trying to give you alternative perspectives to what comes at you straight down the pipe through the mainstream media. We hope you're listening to us on Terrestrial Radio. We can't say enough good things about KDVS, from which we've been broadcasting since the year 2002, and KZFR, who's been airing us since 2008. Both of these institutions are deserving of your support And we hope you will keep that in mind during their annual pledge drives. All right. We do want to note with with great sadness the passing of a legend from NASA. John Young passed away this week. He was an astronaut on Gemini. He walked on the moon as part of the Apollo project. And he later distinguished himself by being the first person to fly home the space shuttle. John Young, in fact, made six trips up into space, which, I don't know, that must be a record. I mean, I believe the total number of people who have been orbiting the Earth is still something like under 600, 500, something like that. I don't know. But the the thing that that I think that cracks us up the most about John Young was the fact that he famously smuggled aboard Gemini 3 a corned beef sandwich. That's from Roland Voices, the opinion that spam might have been more appropriate, being that the astronauts were famously derided by the people under Chuck Yeager at Edwards Air Force Base as being spam in a can, being that they didn't actually pilot their vehicles. This does remind us of an article that appeared in Smithsonian in the June 2013 issue about what astronauts were eating up in space. If you're of a certain age, you probably remember that uh, the makers of Tang, the breakfast beverage with an orange flavor, bragged about the fact that it had been chosen for space missions by NASA. And that is, in fact, true. What the, makers, what the makers of Tang didn't tell you was the reason why. And the reason why, as I understand it, was that when you're up in space, you have to recycle your liquids. And whether it was those recycled liquids or liquids they sent up uh, originally from Earth, either way, apparently it had a funny taste when you were orbiting the Earth. So they decided to add a little bit of Tang to it to mask that. I know, Mr. Merlin, I don't remember what became of space food sticks, which, <laughs> which were aggressively marketed uh, back in the 70s. They weren't bad, kind of like Tootsie Rolls, but I guess with a little nutrition, perhaps better tasting, yes. At any rate, NASA put a lot of thought into what their astronauts were going to eat. Uh, they generally wanted to make it low residue to minimize that problem of pooping in space, which is not an insignificant problem. And as part of Radio Parallax's <laughs> continuing effort to blow the lid off of, of legends, we would note that when you do go in Washington, D.C. to the 
Air and Space Museum, and you perhaps buy some of the, or you can do this also in uh, in Mountain View at the NASA facility there. If you buy some of the freeze-dried ice cream, which, by the way, I've never done, you will note that it has a styrofoam consistency and will leave a strange, slick film on the back of your teeth, but it, but it will excite many people with the knowledge that this is what the astronauts ate. It is, of course, in every way inferior to <laughs> terrestrial ice cream. At any rate, the real story is that freeze-dried ice cream did make an appearance on the Apollo 7 mission in 1968, but got scratched from the space program soon after that. The astronauts, it seems, didn't like the stuff. And I guess when John Young offered his corned beef sandwich to Gus Grissom as a surprise on Gemini 3, the controllers back down in Florida were not, to say the least, amused. In fact, Young was severely reprimanded for this stunt. But I gather he was such a good pilot, they let him back in and did eventually send him to the moon. Now, why it is exactly that a corned beef sandwich was considered a hazard to space travel, I I can't say. But if you have some insight into this, dear listener, please don't hesitate to share us by dropping us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And final item, as alluded to, I think, a few weeks ago, uh, China is about to lose its space station. It's going to come crashing down out of the sky sometime in March, but they say, don't worry about it. It's a quote from a piece in the New York Times by Niraj Chokshi. The space station, Tiagong-1, is predicted to make a return trip to the Earth in mid-March, give or take a few weeks, according to an analysis by the Aerospace Corps, a federally funded research center. The article notes, you shouldn't worry, the odds are no one will get hurt. Tiagong-1, which has been unmanned for more than four years, could fall anywhere on about two-thirds of the Earth's surface, although it is most likely to land in one of two bands that encircle the globe parallel to the equator. Now, one of the bands in the southern hemisphere includes Tasmania, parts of New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, mostly water. Not too much worry there. On the other hand, the one in the northern hemisphere covers more land, cutting large swaths across the United States, Europe, and Asia. The article notes that the probability that a specific person, i.e. you, will be struck by Tiagong-1 debris is about a million times smaller than the odds of winning the Powerball jackpot. Despite its, despite its size, most people think that it will mostly burn up on the way back down to Earth. The article concludes by noting, even when objects survive the fall, they rarely cause substantial harm. Only one person is known to have been hit by such debris. Lottie Williams of Oklahoma was struck without injury by a small chunk of a rocket booster in 1997. I can tell you this, if I was Lottie Williams, I would have bought a lotto ticket. Anyway, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. (laughs) 